the Australian Financial Review. Welcome to The Fin. I'm Lisa Murray. The podcast is on holidays right now, but we're replaying some of our favourite episodes as part of a summer series. Former Rear Window editor Joe Aston was one of the Australian Financial Review's most loved, but more importantly, most feared columnists. He had people turning to the back page every morning before they'd even poured out their coffee. But in October, after a 12-year reign, he decided to call it a day. I spoke with Joe about his evolution from gossip columnist to campaigning journalist, his struggles along the way, and how he held companies like Qantas and PwC to account. I hope you enjoy this replay of our discussion. Welcome to Rear Window. Welcome to Rear Window. Welcome to Rear Window. After 12 years helming one of the Financial Review's most popular columns, Joe Aston is calling it a day. Many readers are in mourning, but for those singled out, there's relief. He made Rear Window a place where business people and politicians were held to account. There's one bloke, Joe Aston, in there the yes. other day. He should be hung, right? Or he should be stripped and flogged, the bastard, right? Because the crack that he wrote. For many, like Jerry Harvey, Joe's reign was one of terror. And he's a gossip writer in the Fin Review, right? The Fin Review is supposed to be this wonderful paper that with quality journalists, but instead of that, they have a gossip writer. Joe is the first to admit he divided opinion. There was admiration and praise, but there was also fear and damnation. You really can't write a column like this unless you have independence. And what I mean is real, terrifying, excruciating independence where it's really uncomfortable for, for me, for my bosses, for everyone, but, but you've just got to do it. Welcome to The Fin. I'm Lisa Murray. Today, Joe Aston on his evolution from gossip columnist to campaigning journalist. What happened when he went too far and life after Rewindow. It's Thursday, October 19. Hi, Joe. Thanks for coming on the podcast one last time. My pleasure, Lisa. It's been a big 12 years for Rear Window, which has become one of the most read, but also the most feared parts of the Financial Review. Joe, take us right back to the beginning. What were you doing before the column? So I was working for Etihad Airways in Abu Dhabi, working there as a speechwriter, and also at the same time freelancing for The Australian, writing features for its features page and for its magazines like Wish. Before I'd worked for Etihad, I'd, I'd spent a couple of years working at Qantas in their corporate communications department, and I'd learned a lot about aviation. I'd learned a lot about Qantas. I, I wrote a couple of its annual reports and really had a good understanding of, of its various parts of the business. That's one of the great things about writing an annual report. If you really want to understand a company, that's one of the best ways to go about it. Before Qantas, I worked in the Howard government. I was a junior staffer. Joe Hockey's office. He was the Minister for Work Choices. And before that, I worked for Bruce Baird, who was a Liberal backbencher. So after this time in the corporate world and in politics, the Financial Review picked you up, first as a design writer for a brief time, before you were then put in charge of Rear Window. 
What was the column like then? What were you taking over? Rear window at the time I took it over was a column of snippets. There were six or seven items each day and it was very much who was seen with who and which AGM had the best sandwiches. So that's the kind of nature of the column at the time. And one of the first things that I did, I know John Alexander, who was editor-in-chief of the Sydney Morning Herald, he loved having these lunch watch items in the CBD column. And that was something I sort of jumped on quite quickly because one of the things that brought me into journalism in the first place was how much I loved going out for lunch. (laughs) So that was a fairly transparent excuse. Oh, I've got to go to Rockpool or I've got to go to Mr. Wong's, you know, so I can see who else is out to lunch. Mm. Uh, But journalism was a job where you went out for lunch and you convinced people to tell you things that they shouldn't. And that had a tremendous appeal to me. So I'm sitting there at all the best restaurants in Sydney and quite often in Melbourne as well. And you know, I'm looking at all of these top investment bankers and company directors and politicians and rich listers. And I'm drawing the dots between how they all work together and operate in this secret world of favours and transactions. And it started to occur to me as I was sitting there that that was the actual story. That was the hidden story underneath that I needed to focus on. And that's, uh, that's one of the first things that I suppose became a bit of a trademark of the column after I'd taken it over. So when did the column start to change from a series of gossip items to that more campaigning style journalism? There are bunch of companies on which I started to explore the format of campaigning on their public statements. Vocation was one which collapsed. Murray Goulburn was the next which also collapsed. But the one that really stands out for me, you know, the the charlatan above all charlatans, was Alex Malley, the CEO of CPA Australia. Of course, he came into visibility, particularly for the AFR, as a major sponsor of our television program, which we ran with Nine. When it comes to business, don't leave things to chance. Financial Review Sunday starts Sunday. Called Financial Review Sunday, which ran for two seasons in 2013 and 2014. Welcome to Rear Window. Ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And the program finished each week with a three-minute video from me. Joe Aston, you're fired. Uh, see you next year. So Alex Malley certainly was on my radar. He was a regular panellist on the show and an anchor advertiser, which made the show viable. Alex Malley's profile continued to grow. He had his own television show now on Channel 9, all paid for by CPA Australia. He had a book, which was absolute rubbish if you actually read it. But there were more copies of Alex Malley's memoir, The Naked CEO, in every bookshop you walk past than, than there were of any other book. The budget for it seemed to be extraordinary. Even had a billboard out in New York's Times Square. And everyone in the business community was, was talking to each other about this. Like, well, like w- how's this work? Like, what, what are the economics of this? W- what's the upside for CPA Australia of plugging their own CEO as some sort of multimedia celebrity? Mm. So... There was this real confusion in the community and that went on for quite a while and I just kind of had it in the back of my mind. And then in 2017, CPA was a sponsor of the Australian Open, tennis, and I just wrote this small piece in my column raising the question sort of why would CPA 
be sponsoring the Australian Open with their brand as prominent as retail brands like Kia, ANZ, etc. What's the benefit of it for CPA members? The, the only benefit that you can kind of see is that Alex Malley gets some prime seats and he gets to take people along to the tennis. So in response to that piece, I got some furious emails from CPA members agreeing with me that it was a complete waste of money. And that sort of started off a bit of a communication with a lot of disaffected CPA members. And you've got to remember, if you're a tax accountant in Australia, you're operating a little practice wherever it might be, you have to be accredited with one of the accounting bodies, whether it's CPA Australia or the Chartered Accountants or one of the other bodies. And they charge you hundreds of dollars a year. You have to do training and pay for more training to be accredited and continue to update your your accreditation. And meanwhile, all of that money that you're paying seems to be going into the media career of the CEO of the organisation. You can imagine why all of these members were just not only scratching their heads, but starting to get really pissed off. Mm. And I started to report the beginnings of an uprising from these members. And in response to that, Mally shut down the Find a CPA function on the CPA website, which ostensibly existed so that you or I could go to the website and find ourselves a good accountant in our postcode. But the rebel members were using it to collate a list of each other so that they could contact each other and say, hey, we've got to do something about this. So incredible that even though that function was designed for members to get leads from the public and get new clients, uh, Mally thought it was reasonable just to cut it off, and that really set them off. So the pieces I was writing started to become more regular, and then it was just full-on disaster because the members were just in outrage that these board directors of CPA had always been volunteers before Mally came along. And, and of course, they changed all of that. And they were very highly paid. And Alex Mally was making $1.7 million a year, <laughs> which was, you know, for a members organization, a startling amount of money. Mm. And effectively, in the end, the board sacked Mally for cause. He then uh, managed to get a $5 million termination payment, which had been increased under his contract against the advice of independent consultants uh, who reported to the board. And then the rest of the board ended up either resigning or, or being removed. So the whole constitution of CPA Australia was changed so that it could never be colonised in that fashion again. It was really a very gratifying campaign. It was the first time that the AFR had ever really done that thing where we've got the news reporters covering the story and me opining on the story at the same time. So really coming at them from the front of the book and the back of the book and really putting the squeeze on. So on the back of that campaign, the profile of the column grew and your own profile did as well. Joe, in the farewell speeches last week, there was a common theme. And that was to separate your time in the role into different eras. There was the slightly loose or wild earlier days, and then there was the more mature and sober Joe era. And the column changed in line with that evolution. Tell us about that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, it was the kind of column where you stumbled back from lunch, you had a few bits and pieces, you threw it all together, you tried to make it fun, but it was loose and it was a bit hit and miss, no doubt about that. Mm. I remember one night after filing, I got a call from Kerry O'Brien, the ABC legend, who launched into me for 
an item I'd written which was incorrect and I hadn't checked with him and uh, he was really fired up and I was really mortified and he said to me, you are the pit, sir, and hung up. Mm. And there's no doubt that I also drank very heavily to cope with the conflict like that. Again, all of this happened incrementally. It was over a period of years. But by 2019, I was pretty pretty broken. I'd moved to LA in the previous year and I was travelling around writing about Donald Trump. I'd gone to Mar-a-Lago as a guest of Australian recycling billionaire Anthony Pratt's to meet the president. I went back to New York to file the story. I was at that point, really struggling to write at all. I, I couldn't remember what words meant and how they went together. I was really needing a dictionary and a thesaurus just to construct a sentence. Mm. That culminated in me uh, breaking down in a bar in New York and I picked up the phone. I called Stutch. That's Michael Stutch, be the editor-in-chief of the Financial Review. And I said, I, I, I have to stop. I need a break. Mm. I don't know how long I'm going away for, but... Uh, I don't know really what happened at that particular moment, but I'm just very lucky that I did sort of pull out of the nosedive before I crashed into the mountain. That was self-evidently a real turning point for me and for my work, I think. I'd already been doing plenty of investigations about companies' governance and their public statements, companies like Domino's, and corporate travel and Blue Sky, but in terms of just the ability to really process more information and think more deeply, that's where things started to really improve in a major way. Mm. I want to pick up on Blue Sky, Joe, because despite your struggles around that time, the column was incredibly successful. It was a go-to part of the paper for anyone in the corporate sector and in Canberra, but there was that particular campaign that got you into trouble. Tell us about Blue Sky. Yeah, so Blue Sky was a company that I was looking at a long time before I actually started writing about it. And I think in one particular annual year in review, I think in 2017, I highlighted that Blue Sky was a company to watch in terms of potential problems. And that turned out to be quite prophetic. In 2018, Glaucus, a short seller, launched an attack on the company over allegations that it was overinflating its assets under management. And uh, I launched into a series of columns. We're talking more than 40 columns about various issues with its disclosures. Again, the company collapsed very quickly. The thing that frustrates me about Blue Sky to this day is that uh, it's, it seems to be constantly forgotten that Blue Sky shareholders lost everything. You know, the, mm. the shares went to zero and there are a lot of, lot of retail shareholders in Blue Sky, particularly in Queensland, who were sold the dream. They're the real victims here. Mm. There are a cast of characters at Blue Sky and I criticised a lot of them. But the two that came in for the most criticism and the most stinging, vicious criticism uh, over their conduct were the CEO, Rob Shand, and the boss of the venture capital arm of the business, Elaine Stead. And ultimately, uh, I was sued for that stinging criticism when Stead sued me and the AFR for defamation. 
We went uh, to a two-week trial in late 2020 and uh, we lost. Joe, the judge in the case said while there was a rational basis for you to be highly critical, you did engage in, and I'm quoting here, a sustained campaign of offensive mockery, which amounted in his view to a form of bullying. How did you respond to that judgment and what happened to the column after it came out? Did it change in any way? I think going through that experience was hugely refining for the way I wrote Rear Window. It taught me, it it didn't just teach me, it burned onto my brain the importance of words and how they are used and how sentences are constructed. It's really, really important. And I've I've taken that on board in a big way. And when I criticise someone, I'm really careful about the way I do it now Defamation law is so complicated, but at the same time so arbitrary. It's a really strange corner of the law. But I think what I could have done differently is dial down the vitriol without dialing down the scrutiny. And of course, after we lost, there are all of these wild predictions that this was the end for for Rear Window. Joe Aston could no longer say the things that he says about company directors, and all of that turned out to be false. Absolutely false. So if you look at what's happened over the last three years, that's not what happened at all. I've just been able to criticise people uh, with a scalpel-like precision, without watering down what I'm trying to say at all. And um, I haven't been sued since. So let's look at those last three years in the latest Joe Aston and Rear Window era. There have been some very high-profile campaigns. Both Rio Tinto and Qantas have been in your sights. And at both those companies, considerable change was brought about. And that was in part due to the sustained pressure on them to respond. How important is it not just to write about these scandals, but to keep coming back to them? Yeah, that's, that's the secret sauce, frankly. You know, the critics of what I do say I become obsessed and, and um, I'm guilty as charged. Only sustained pressure on these companies and on their leaders affects change. Do you really think if I'd written one or two columns about Qantas that Alan Joyce and Richard Goida would have left early? Of course not. Uh, But I did. I wrote nearly 40 columns about Qantas and piled on the pressure and the result is self-evident. A series of scandals over the past few days has sent Qantas's reputation into a tailspin, forcing Joyce into early retirement. Qantas chairman Richard Goida preparing to eject from the cockpit. He may have read the room. The room is saying it's time to go. Another example of of that campaigning was obviously Rio Tinto. So in May 2020, Rio Tinto blew up the Jukan Gorge uh, to access more iron ore over the protests of the Aboriginal traditional owners, the PKKP people. Because the gorge contained precious rock shelters, that dated back 46,000 years. So given the leadership of Rio Tinto at that time and the pattern of the company's behaviours, I actually wasn't that surprised that something like that could occur. Jean-Sébastien Jacques, the Frenchman who ran Rio Tinto, was a fairly idiosyncratic individual. 
he'd uh, started at Rio Tinto by addressing a town hall of staff and telling them that everyone could fit in or fuck off. That was actually what he said. It's quite hard to believe. Mm. So there was this gush of newspaper and television coverage about the Jukan Gorge and there was real horror. Late last month, two rock shelters at the 46,000-year-old site were obliterated by Rio Tinto to allow for the expansion of the Brockman 4 iron ore mine. There can be no moving forward until the full truth is disclosed. And then there has to be accountability for that truth. But Rio Tinto management went to ground. Jacques said nothing. There was no apology. There was just this information vacuum. And I really think that Rio Tinto thought they could ride it out. And the parallels actually with Qantas this year are quite incredible. The Rio Tinto board grossly failed in its duties at that time. Jacques took three weeks to say anything publicly. They issued a sorry, not sorry to a private staff meeting, which I broke the story of. They asked Marsha Langton to come in, a respected Indigenous leader, to do a review of what had happened. But uh, when she insisted on independence and the participation of the PKKP people, the board rescinded their offer. But, you know, the, this, this went on for a period of many weeks, right through the winter of 2020. And Ultimately, the Australian media really lost interest in the story and I was just so determined that these bastards were not going to get away with what they'd done. I just wrote and wrote and wrote. (laughs) And to their great credit, the Australian shareholders in particular stood up, the industry super funds, said this is not on. And on September 11th in 2020, Jacques and both of those two senior executives resigned Three of Rio Tinto's top executives are leaving the mining giant after a shareholder revolt over the destruction of an ancient Aboriginal site. CEO Jean-Sebastien Jacques will resign from the company by mutual agreement, while the miners' head of iron ore, Chris Salisbury, and head of corporate relations, Simone Niven, are also stepping down. But of course, they were allowed to walk away with their long-term bonus shares of something like $70 million, which which was just the next part of the scandal because you can imagine shareholders, but also the Australian public, let alone the Aboriginal traditional owners of the land that had just been destroyed, were so aghast that this was going to be allowed that it then became an issue of survival for the board. And that then went for several more months and ultimately resulted in the chairman, Simon Thompson, standing down, Lestrange standing down. And of course, Lestrange is now standing down from the Qantas board. So there are you know, really incredible parallels in this story. Joe, do you have a favourite nemesis? And were you given free reign in choosing your targets in the column? Absolute free reign. Absolutely never directed or really even asked to write about anything. I, I, I really did run my own race and I'm really grateful for that. I think in the earlier years there was a little bit more, well, you should really do this. But I think ultimately people realised that I wasn't going to listen. Look... It's hard to beat Jerry Harvey. He is the cartoonish kind of Scrooge character in real life. And um, yeah, I almost have a bit of affection for, for Jerry, to be honest, because you know, he's obviously had a good swing back at me. He went on television in 2017 and he said that I should be stripped and flogged and hanged in the town square, which I thought was pretty punchy. Sounds like something I'd say about someone else. Um, but uh, look, 
Jerry was, he just, you could always count on Jerry. One of the things about this job is on the days where you've just got nothing to write, it's the worst feeling in the world. It just feels like agony. And you could always count on Jerry Harvey coming out of nowhere and saying something really dumb. <laughs> um, the job keeper, you know, the, the, you know, the things he said about unemployed people. He was just the cartoonish figure of the billionaire. But also remember that Harvey Norman's one of the biggest advertisers at Nine, the owner of this newspaper, and they were one of the biggest advertisers at Fairfax Media before. And uh, they certainly made their um, displeasure known, I think, but they never pulled any advertising. Uh, they never demanded that it stop. And so I sort of have to tip my hat to them on that, on that front because, you know, there are certainly others who have tried to use commercial means to shut down free speech. And Alan Joyce at Qantas is certainly one of those people. He, of course, pulled all of the Sydney Morning Herald and, and the Age newspapers out of Sydney airport terminals in 2014 when Adele Ferguson wrote that he should be uh, resigning as CEO of Qantas. And he then used the same strategy nearly 10 years later on the AFR when he pulled the AFR out of, uh, out of Qantas lounges and off the Qantas in-flight Wi-Fi network over my columns criticising him. So you really can't write a column like this unless you have independence. And what I mean is real terrifying excruciating independence where it's really uncomfortable for for me for my bosses for everyone but but you've just got to do it one of the great examples i think was when i was smashing up domino's pizza over um they were making very bold growth promises that i was pulling apart and which in my defense have turned out to have been too ambitious but at that time jack cowan uh, hungry jack cowan who's the largest shareholder in domino's pizza was a member of the fairfax media board uh, so that was, you know, pretty close to, <laughs> to pretty close for comfort. But again, I was fully supported to continue writing those articles, and I'm really lucky for that. It was a huge privilege. So, what would your advice be for aspiring columnists? You can't be a good journalist if you need to be loved by your sources or your contacts. That's not your job. We're all social beings. And it's totally natural to want people to like you and to like other people in response. So this is a really socially unnatural job. And the social hostility that you get as a result of what you do, it has an effect. It wears you down. There's psychic wear and tear and it feels exhausting. And uh, I'd be lying if I, if I said that that hadn't affected me at various times and that I'm not looking forward to just having a break from that. Yeah, it's not natural to piss people off for a living. It's just not. You've got to really reach through all of that and remember all the time what you're doing it for. And you're doing it for the reader. You are doing it to reach out to the reader and invite them to see what you're seeing. Invite the reader to collude with you as you laugh at all of these powerful people and the ridiculous things that they say and do. The interesting thing is, I say you can't be a good journalist if you, if you need to be loved. But the same thing applies, I think, to being a really good public company chairman or being a good minister of the crown, or being a good CEO. Um, the same thing happens, and that's what was fascinating about this job, is watching people manage or mismanage their responsibilities in, in high office because of their social motivations or their social incentives or because of their aversion to interpersonal conflict. I mean, that, that's the jam right there. That's what people are interested in. Joe, in recent years, Rear Window has been a team effort with you working closely with Miriam Robbins. So you're leaving the column in good hands. 
what would you say to the next person joining the team? The next person to join the, the rear window team should lean very heavily on Miriam because she's a tremendous journalist and you know, she's really a nice writer and she thinks deeply about these things and her work is nuanced. That was part of what went so well in the last few years as well is we're just, we were such a good foil for each other. I'm swinging the sword, but she's kind of got a more calm uh, metronome style about her. And uh, look, I'm really looking forward to continuing to follow her work as well. She's really ready to lead that uh, column. And everyone wants to know what's next for you. <laughs> a long summer break. Uh, look, I don't know. I have lots of ideas, but nothing's set, nothing's arranged, and that's that's the truth of it. In some ways, it feels a bit crazy to give up something that you know you're good at that's gone really well. And there's this mindset out there that if you resign from a job... Uh, without having something else to go to, that you're completely crazy. And I know there's risk involved, but I don't think that there's much likelihood I'll be at Centrelink in 12 months' time. And I also, as a journalist, understand the whole, oh, well, what's really going on here angle, because that's what I think about other people who resign, to spend more time with their families. (laughs) But there's no other answer. I uh, I just know that I think there's something to be said for knowing when it's time, for going on your own terms. And I certainly think that there are many subjects of mine over the years who wish they'd done the same thing. Thanks, Joe. I'm sure that's not the last we'll hear of you. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Lisa. I'll miss you guys. 